Communications Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative, joined today, as always, by our trustee leader, Tony Anderson. Good morning. Thanks for joining us, Tony. And we're also joined today by an illustrious guest uh, to talk about what can only be described as a scintillating topic, the Michigan Public Service Commission. You'll hear us refer to it throughout the podcast as the MPSC. And uh, joining us to talk about the MPSC is uh, the newest MPSC commissioner, Dan Scripps. Hi, Dan. Hi. Excited to be here. I know. We're excited to have you. So the MPSC regulates utilities in order to ensure uh, safe, reliable, and accessible energy at reasonable rates for Michigan's residents. It's composed of three commissioners, of which uh, Commissioner Scripps is one. They are appointed by the governor to staggered six-year terms, and then the NPSC also has a staff of approximately 125 employees to kind of do that work. Um, Commissioner Scripps was appointed to the commission by Governor Whitmer on February 25th of this year and formally served, he may be familiar to some of our listeners, because he formally served as the Democratic representative for Michigan's 101st House District. Uh, which represents Binzi, Leelana, Manistee, and Mason counties. H- how long ago was that? Uh, 2009 and 10. So okay. Wow. Okay. Ten years. I, I know. didn't think it had been that long. And he and his his fa- he and his family live in Northport, so right right in Cherryland Service Territory. Um, but he has a lot of experience in the energy world, including serving as president of the Michigan Energy Innovation Business Council, and as vice president with Advanced Energy Economy, where he focused on energy finance issues, and also spent some time in D.C. with a law firm that worked with regulated utilities and energy project developers. Did I did I capture it well? You did. Okay, good. So given all that, you've been involved in you know energy policy advocacy, and now on the regulatory side in Michigan for well over a decade. Um, Can you talk about what changes you've seen in the time you've kind of been involved in energy? Sure. And this is, I think, the most exciting job in the world right now because so much is changing. I think for a long time you sort of had load growth that floated all boats. And and now we're in a point where um, load growth on the electricity side, at least in the U.S., is basically flat. Uh, There's a huge amount of work to be done on the distribution system to improve reliability. There's a changing generation mix um, driven largely by economics, falling prices for both natural gas and renewables. And, you know, it's an interesting time to be a regulator. It's an interesting time, as you all know, to to be in the utility business and try and manage those different forces uh, as as best that you can. Uh, And at the same time, you know, those are sort of national trends, but we're seeing them play out very much in Michigan as well. We just completed our statewide energy assessment, or at least the initial assessment, earlier this month. And one of the things that that became sort of clear is just how much has changed in Michigan in in the last decade. Ten years ago, we were 60% coal as a state. Today, it's about 35%. And that has all been made up for um, with both gas and and renewables. And that is a pretty dramatic change in where we get our energy in the course of just a decade. Um, How does your previous experience shape your opinions and how you work on the MPSC? You know, I think I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of different experiences. So as a policymaker in the in the state house and representing this area, which has a, a lot of energy assets, everything from the pump storage facility down in, in Ludington to some uh, run of the river hydro and along the Manistee River and, um, you know, an old coal plant in Manistee, the first wind turbine that I think we can actually see from here. And, and of course, your community solar project. And so when you look at all of that, it, it, it sort of just representing this district, this part of the state was a crash course in in how energy is is produced and consumed, but also as an attorney looking sort of globally and working on a number of projects and seeing how it works in in other countries, the sort of different forces that both investors and project developers look at, 
Uh, and then more recently in the clean energy space, sort of looking nationally, what states were doing, uh, what what was working, what wasn't working, um, and um, some of the drivers uh, of the change that, that's taking place. So it's it's been a number of different vantage points, and I think that has allowed me to, you know, not put too many eggs in any one basket and really try and understand the system as a whole. What do you see that's really working in other states that you'd like to see in Michigan? You know, I, there's a lot of planning that's taking place, and um, and I will also say that that's happening in Michigan as well. But some of the states that surround us, Ohio, Minnesota, Illinois, are are taking steps on distribution planning that that are getting a fair amount of attention. Missouri as well, um, and and rightfully so. What we've been doing at, at the Michigan Commission is really looking at that in terms of the specifics where the the rubber hits the road. So there's not been any real high profile. Um, convenings or that sort of thing. It's, it's been sort of the nuts and bolts of how the distribution system operates. But that, I think, increasingly is playing out in the, the resource planning as well. And in the, the most recent case that we approved for consumers' energy, we actually found that the investments that they're making in the first three years of that plan are basically all on the distribution side. Mm-hmm. So this sort of convergence between generation planning, distribution planning, I think we can learn from other states, but I also think I'd hold up what we've been doing in terms of the level of detail and the sophisticated analysis that's being done by the staff at the commission. Great. Yeah, it's interesting. You had mentioned a fact earlier about Michigan moving from 60% coal-based to now 35%. It's like a 50% decrease in the mm-hmm. amount of coal in our portfolio in the last decade. And that's uh, that's kind of topic that gets a ton of attention and people get very excited about. People don't get as excited about in distribution investment and distribution planning. But when I look at the way technology is driving an improvement in the flexibility of our distribution grids and also our ability to predict and use all the data that's coming in to be proactive on our distribution grids, it is actually incredibly exciting. It's hard to get the public excited about it, but it's 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 amazing to look at what, what utilities can do with, with distribution grid investments today and demand response. I know that was a part of Consumer's Plan. Like, there's some cool stuff going on. Absolutely. And, and if you sort of follow the money, if you will, um, that's, that's where the investments are being made, too, that we have – you know, the, the generation mix is changing. There's obviously dollars flowing, but, but more than half of the dollars in any rate case that comes before us today are related to distribution system investments. And that, that wasn't the case 10 years ago. So the, the focus of, of what it can do, the technology that I think is providing greater optionality both for, for consumers and their customers, or for utilities and their customers, and, and then the sort of the amount of investment that's taking place, the scale of the investment. And for me as a regulator, it that's the part where you can either make smart investments or dumb investments. And uh, if you make dumb investments, the, the danger is that you have to go back and, and redo them. Um, and, you know, we, we're very conscious of rates. That's part of our mission. And uh, we want to make sure that as we're doing this, we're increasing optionality, that we're increasing the, the flexibility, as you said, Rachel, um, so that, you know, it's, it's enabling more, but it's also not forcing us to redo it in five or ten years. So along those lines, just to make sure all of our listeners are kind of on the same page, can we kind of dig into what is the role of the NPSC in Michigan? Because I think, again, people you know, think, oh, the NPSC says don't do coal. But, I mean, you, you guys have a much broader reach. So can you talk through kind of the role of the NPSC? Sure. Um, so as you described in the, the opening, it's, it's really looking at safe, reliable, and accessible energy and telecommunications. We have both. Um, we don't regulate water. A lot of commissions in other states do, but we don't in Michigan. Uh, and then ensuring reasonable rates for Michigan residents. Um, 
So that's, it, you know, it, it's fairly broad in those terms. Um, what we don't do is, is regulate co-ops, um, with, with one exception. Mm-hmm. But um, knowing where I am today, I think that's an important. And we don't uh, regulate municipal electric utilities. So Traverse City Light and Power is regulated by the Traverse City's government. You, of course, are regulated by your members. But for the investor-owned utilities, the Consumers Energies and the DTEs of, of Michigan, um, those fall within the jurisdiction of, of the Public Service Commission. And really, it's looking at sort of keeping the lights on, um, making sure that rates are affordable, uh, plugging in, you know, some of the economic development strategies that, that energy costs are a big part of it, uh, and then looking at um, at sort of managing the transition as, as we go through this, that, that as energy becomes cleaner, as some of our plants that were built in the 50s and 60s start to come offline, how do we manage that transition? How do we do it for communities? How do we do it for ratepayers? How do we do it for the state? And, and do it in a way that if we do it right, for the most part, all of the people you just described won't even know we did it, right? Like as we're as we're transitioning into different in different technologies for managing your energy use or different technologies for generating electricity, the goal, at least I know here at Cherryland, is that our members don't feel anything in that process. They don't feel rate pressure in that process. They don't feel reliability issues in that process. But Tony, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the the co-op's relationship to the MPSC and, and sure. that. Sure. We are not regulated for rates. We made the conscious choice in 2009 to be member regulated. Every co-op in the state can choose to be regulated by the MPSC or not. And I believe it's Cloverland Electric Cooperative is the only co-op of the nine co-ops in Michigan that stayed with uh, MPSC regulation. We are regulated for safety, territory, and uh, energy efficiency. The energy efficiency mandate is overseen by the MPSC as well. So we do have some regulation from the MPSC, but municipals are not regulated by the MPSC and have never been under the theory that they elect their representatives. And the co-ops made that same argument over 10 years ago to the state uh, legislature, and uh, the bill was passed unanimously at that time. And then co-ops, one by one, could decide whether they wanted to stay or go. And uh, we mm-hmm. we left in two, two, July of 2009. So. Right at ten year, or ten year anniversary month. We're having a ten year anniversary <laughs> podcast. Yeah. No, but and kind of implied in that is the um, the assumption that it's our board that's going to be looking out for our members' interests when it comes to rates. And I think then it's incumbent on co-ops to to, to live up to that. So here Absolutely. at Cherryland, we've I, I, mean, I think we're really pr- proud of our of mm-hmm. our track record. But we've had one rate increase in the last seven years. Two two, two rate increases two in, in the last ten eight ten years. Yep. Um, and our rates are are very, very uh, competitive. We won't call anybody out, but they are lower than the, the closest investor-owned utility. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, been, um, it's been good. It's been good for our members, and our board mm-hmm. has done a good job of representing their interest on rate issues. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's the whole thing, is, is who is ultimately looking out for the customers. And, and when you've got a co-op and you're directly responsible for your members, or when you're a municipal electric utility and it, it sort of how, is housed in, in local government, that's one thing. Investor-owned utilities, you know, for better or worse, have have other pressures, and mm-hmm. so that's where I think having a state regulator step in and, and making sure that the their customers are ultimately looked out for as well uh, comes in. But yeah, yeah absolutely, we have no desire to go further than we are right now in terms of who we regulate. Well, we appreciate that. Note that whatever time that was on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm just kidding. Um, so one of the uh, things I was hoping we could kind of talk about as a group is just. We've talked about where we've come as a state in the last 10 years, and that transition is ongoing. Technology is changing so rapidly. Um, and I just kind of want to hear from both of you what you see as the, the biggest energy challenges that we're going to face as a state over the next 
let's say, decade? For me, it's, it's building at scale. You know, as the coal plants shut down, we need to build renewables at scale. Uh, another pump storage would be great, but we need more, more wind farms in the state, and we need large-scale solar if we're going to really uh, shut down those coal plants. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, the, that transition continues to happen. I think there are questions about how do you get, you know, from a system where you had central station base load generation that, um, that you could sort of fire up and, and forget about in some ways to something that is much more modular, um, where um, these are utility-scale projects, but it's still, when you're shutting down a 1,000-megawatt coal plant, uh, making up for that power, particularly with intermittent resources, which renewables are. How do you pair that with storage? How do you pair that with demand response and other sort of customer-sided demand management? Um, all of that requires, I think, a lot more thinking about how how you achieve that system balance than than you had to think about in the past. And it's it's an, it's introducing new complexity into the system that we're all agreeing to continue mm-hmm. to maintain and offer on behalf of our um, our members or, or customers in the case of investor-owned utilities. And so that um, just being sure that we're we're thinking appropriately about the implications of that complexity and how that will look. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. When you, when you think about it, when the sun set, sets, solar shuts off. When the wind stops blowing, wind shuts off. Something has to be there to make up for that power when they're off, and that's. That's what's going to be a bigger and bigger challenge as we go down the road and we get more and more renewables is balancing that power. Mm-hmm. Turning on and turning off is going to be a, a bigger game than it used to. Because mm-hmm. in the past, when we were 60% coal, you fired up the coal plant and it just ran and you never had to worry about it going up or down. Mm-hmm. It was just there. And now it's it's going to be a different, yeah, it's just going to be a, a different New normal. New normal, yeah. Well, and I mean, we've talked a little bit about on the dr- distribution side, but our trans- our larger transmission regional grid is going to play an increasingly important Absolutely. role in balancing mm-hmm. because of the fact that while it might be true that the wind isn't blowing and say the thumb of Michigan, at that exact same moment, the wind could be just going gangbusters in northern Indiana. And do we have the ability to, uh, you know, kind of balance all that out with, with regional grid yep. as well? Yeah, and there's some okay. challenges there. I mean, we it, this was something that we, again, looked at as part of the statewide energy assessment. And the what we call the capacity import limit, if you thought distribution planning was exciting, <laughs> get, in, get into transmission planning. Um, but but it's, it's very close to zero at this point. And, and that doesn't mean that we don't take energy from Ohio or Indiana, but it, it's sort of the ability of, of the Michigan grid to rely on sources outside of Michigan. Uh, and so that, I think, looks at sort of how do you boost transmission, how do you boost planning, um, what do you need in-state in order to, to make sure that, that the lights stay on. Um, and those are all, all big questions, but absolutely taking that sort of regional approach, working with MISO and PGAM, the sort of regional grid operators, to make sure that even as a peninsular state, Michigan's able to benefit from those interconnections. Can you talk a little bit about the UP Energy Task Force? You were just there this week, I believe. And how does that fit in the whole bigger picture in Michigan energy? Yeah, when when Rachel was talking earlier about sort of staying out of the news and uh, making sure that that our customers don't feel it, this is is something that's very true. And and when energy's in the news, it's it's usually for all the wrong reasons. And there's probably no better example in Michigan of that than than some of the challenges the UP's faced over the last several years. So I, I think coming out of that, um, the the governor earlier this year created a UP Energy Task Force. Um, basically two stages of work. The first one is looking at propane delivery um, and, and ultimately uh, potentially alternatives to propane as well in the event of supply dis- disruptions. And the second is taking a more holistic look. I mean, the, the challenges of some of the highest rates in the, in the country in, in the UP on the electric side, some of the 
lack of availability of, of natural gas and, and the other challenges that sort of compound those two things, the fact that there aren't a lot of great transmission connections for the Upper Peninsula, all of those are part of a, a longer term. So the first one is, you know, in the event of, of a shutdown of Line 5, um, either planned or, or accidental, um, and, and what that means in terms of propane delivery and, and keeping the heat flowing in the Upper Peninsula, and then taking a holistic view that says, how do we get those rates uh, under control? What are, what are the other strategies to address the sort of myriad and overlapping energy challenges that the residents of the UP face? What do you think the life of this task force is going to be? Are they going to get this work done in six months or a year or what? what? So the, you, if you fix the UP in six yeah. months, I think you yeah. get a crown. Well, I mean, right, exactly. I think <laughs> it could retire at that point. So, no, the, the governor said um, by the end of March 2020, uh, a UP okay. propane plan, uh, and by the end of March 2021, which is a year and a half from now, but it's amazing mm-hmm. to talk about 2021, right. um, the, the rest of the UP energy plan, and that we um, were done 90 days after that. So this okay. is not designed to be something that limps along for a decade. It's, yep you know, 18 months of focused effort I, and trying to get That's why I wanted the people to understand. Yeah. It's, it's a, a lot of work that's going to happen in a relatively short time. Fortunately, a lot of it happens in the UP, and yeah. there's no bigger fan of, of that peninsula than me. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that not all of our listeners may have kind of context for, one of the challenges with the UP has been that it hasn't all. Michigan has not always been able to kind of be seen as a, as, as a whole state when it comes to energy planning. Because you, you mentioned transmission, the bulk of the UP's energy is coming from Wisconsin because that's where it is land connected to. And so thinking through how to kind of take take back the UP, if you will, in terms of energy planning and making sure that we're looking out for UP ratepayers is a is a laudable go, uh, project, but it's going to going to be a lot of work. Yeah, no, I mean, the reality is that it ba- we basically are one state with two very different energy mm-hmm. uh, systems and trying to get more connectivity uh, between those, whether it's, you know, electric transmission through the straits or or natural gas transmission um, is a big part of the strategy mm-hmm. um, to try and make sure that, that we are serving everybody that lives in Michigan, whichever peninsula they call home. We'll have to have um, have you come back and give us an update on the UP yes. task force at some point. Absolutely. That'll be fun to hear about. Um, you kind of hinted at this when we were talking about challenges over the next 10 years, but I'm, I'm going to ask the, the elephant in the room question, net metering. So uh, d- net metering is just a topic that get, has had a ton of attention in Michigan in the last, we'll be generous and say 18 months in terms of rates. Um, you, the commission has overseen a few rate cases tied to uh, setting new net metering rates. Cherryland changed our net metering rate several years ago. So I was wondering if you can just talk through some of those conversations and kind of where we're at. Sure. I'm sure that most people who listen to <laughs> this podcast know what net metering it is, but but essentially it's getting a full credit on your bill for every uh, kilowatt hour that you produce um, from your solar system and, and send back to the grid. And what the legislature did, um, and the commission is really a, a creature of, of statute, that we apply the statutes as written by the legislature and, and determine it based on the record in front of us. So we're not a policymaking body, but what we've done is you know, the legislature in 2016 said it was time to shift from net metering to a distributed generation tariff structure. So um, getting rid of the sort of one-for-one one credit and moving towards a cost-of-service uh, approach to, to, to distributed generation. Um, we've had two rate cases, one in DTE and one in UPCO so far that have um, implemented it. It could be included in any rate case filed after June 1st, 2018. So those are the, f- the first two that are done. Um, and in each case, um, the, the utilities proposed something that, um, that ultimately reflected what we're calling an inflow-outflow model. So you, um, for any electricity that you buy from your utility, again, we only regulate investor-owned utilities, but 
um, you pay the, the full amount of, of that kilowatt hour. And then for any um, that you sell back, it's, it's really looking at sort of the, the value to the grid of the energy that you're providing. And so there is this outflow credit that's been calculated um, that, that is basically the, the um, power supply element of the, the utility's cost of producing that power. So you're offsetting a, a kilowatt hour that they would have had to buy somewhere else and sort of what is the value that you're displacing. And that has been slightly different in the, the UPCO and DTE service territories. In both cases, it extended the repayment period by a couple of years. So mm-hmm. under net metering, a solar array might pay for itself in nine years. I think in both cases, it's about 13 years right now. In both cases, it was also um, more generous than what was uh, originally um, proposed by the utility. I think both of them would have had it to about 17 years. And so it's sort of halfway in, in between. And these solar arrays typically generate for about 20, 25 years. So it's it is something where it's still paying for itself in about half the time that you've got it on your roof, but but trying to get a better reflection uh, of the actual value that your solar array is providing and, and the, the cost that, that you also, you know, the benefits that you have by, by staying as a participant in the grid. And this is, you know, where we're starting. So I think that as we get more information from this, as it rolls out over the next couple of years, we'll take a look at it. Did we get it right? Are we evaluating both the inflow and the outflow correctly? Um, so super wonky stuff, but um, but really matters in terms of sort of the future of solar and particular distri- particularly distributed solar and the health of the overall grid in Michigan. And that's very similar to what we did at Cherryland three years ago. We, we went to a avoided cost of power. And what we've seen in the last three years is the same number of people adding net metering to their home. So we don't feel like we've disincentivized it here. If you look at the five years before the subsidy and the three years since we changed, the, the numbers of new people coming on haven't haven't changed. Yeah, and I, you know, we'll we'll see what the data is on on the investor owns, but but it is I th- I think a recognition that there are you know costs that we should all be participating mm-hmm. and paying for, and then there's a fair amount of of discussion over what is the actual value. You know, solar typically generates pretty close to peak, um, and so that's when power can be most expensive. Um, but it also, you know, let's let's look at it in real terms. And yeah. Well, we'll be watching closely just to see what the price is to see where we're at. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I've always thought maybe doesn't get said enough is if we don't get these, we call them DRG, but just distributed renewable generation rates right, it makes it hard for us to then allow the DRG on our system to expand because the rate itself is unsustainable. So the goal, I think, for us is to get rates in there that are sustainable so that we can, as many people as want to come to us and say, hey, this is something I'm looking at doing, we can accommodate that because the rate itself is a sustainable rate structure. And and these inflow outflow structures are probably more sustainable in the long run, just figuring out what the right number should be attached to them. Yeah, and I think net metering was a great place to start, and Mm -hmm. it was always designed sort of as a pilot. So it was capped at 1% of utility load um, that that could participate, or or utilities could choose that. And what we're finding now is that there's some discussion about whether that's right, based exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. If, If we get these right, then you can sort of allow anybody to participate. And so in the UPCO service territory, as part of their rate case, they had, you know, we approved the the new, and this was a settlement, we approved the the new um, inflow outflow mechanism, and they doubled their participation cap to 2%. Uh, And I know that there are active conversations in the legislature of if this is everybody now paying their full cost of service and being sort of equitably reimbursed for the power they're supplying, is there still an ongoing need to to cap it at that Mm -hmm. 1% level? Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch it all play out. 
Yeah, in Michigan, we're running into trouble with building uh, large wind farms. And we haven't hit trouble with the large solar installations yet, but I anticipate we, we may as we build more and more of them. What do you see the MPSC's role in zoning and siting issues? We have almost no role in that. Um, it's something we're conscious of in terms of, you know, as, as utilities are rolling out these plans, as, as companies are saying we want more and more renewables, you know, can, can you actually build it? Uh, but that's not something that we're responsible for. I will say that, you know, these resources, like any resource, probably aren't right everywhere. Uh, and I think there's a strong case to be made that local communities should have still have sort of the final say in, in what happens in their community. And what we've seen in Michigan is that when developers do their homework, when they meet with the community and say, you know, here's an idea, how do we make this sort of fit with your community values, et cetera, when there's a discussion, uh, projects continue to get built. I was down um, in Gratiot County last week visiting one that's under development, uh, and I know that there are developers who continue to sign up folks who are interested in having wind on their properties. In other places where developers come in and say, we're going to do this to your community, and don't do that legwork, don't do the listening, you know, don't come in with a from a position of respecting the community and, and what they want for people who, you know, call this place home, it hasn't gone as well mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And so I think in some ways it's really up to the developers to work with communities. There are still a lot of places that want to host these. There are other places that, that don't. Um, and to, to try and find something that really works for the communities that are affected. Mm -hmm. Good answer. <laughs> oh, honestly, you, you got another gold star. <laughs> Excellent. It, but it is only going to become more important because one of the things that some of these generating resources, um, renewables, bring is a lot more land use than what we're used to with, you know, we can put in a natural gas plant and it takes up, whatever, 15 acres. And that same, that same equivalent of solar is, you know, 100 times that. And so just thinking through land use and making sure that we're, to your point, engaging the communities where, where, the, where it makes sense to build those things. Um, but on a, a different, maybe less controversial and, and just more happy topic, one of the things we're really watching is electric vehicles. We're really excited about them because it is an opportunity for us to um, do a couple of things. One, it's an opportunity for us to sell electricity in a sector that we've ne not traditionally been able to sell in. Um, but it's also an opportunity for us to really, uh, like kind of the only path to a carbon-free transportation future is electricity. So it's an opportunity to kind of clean up the transportation sector uh, but in Michigan, one of the things we know is we don't currently have a lot of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Um, certainly there are a lot of rate issues involved with how we charge people to charge their cars. What's, where's the MPSC at with that? And kind of what kinds of things are you all talking about with electric vehicles? You know, I, I think we agree wholeheartedly with, with the upside that you've laid out. And a couple of years ago, we had a rate case in front of us um, where, you know, it hadn't been all that well thought out. The parties were fighting. And, you know, under the leadership of Norm Sari, one of my colleagues, took a step back and said, let's get everybody in a room. Let's do this the right way and listen to the sort of charging providers, the customers, the utilities, sort of got everybody together over a couple of what we call technical conferences, everything we do is wonky, um, <laughs> and really sort of laid out, I think, a consensus approach to this. And in the last two rate cases from DTE and consumers, we've now approved $23 million or thereabouts, which is more than any other state in the, the Midwest in terms of utility investment and charging infrastructure. Uh, it's one of these field of dreams things. If you build it, you know, they will come. Folks get more comfortable. The range anxiety goes down if they know that they're going to have a place to charge. And we see utilities having a constructive role to play in that. Now, it's matched up with smart charging so that you can use the existing generation assets 
uh, more efficiently, that you don't have to go out and, and build more. And as a result, we think there are rate benefits to, to all customers, including those who will never drive an electric vehicle, but will benefit from sort of the, the infrastructure they're already being paid, they're already paying for being used more of the time. And so that, you know, it's a, it's a starting point. $23 million is the most in the Midwest. It's, it's a fraction of what, you know, New York and California are doing. But I think it's, it's a way of starting the, the process. And then there's a lot of coordination going on with some of the other folks in state government, as well as the, the auto companies, charging companies, uh, and others in terms of sort of how do you get a, a, an approach that you sort of build on the synergies. We're not doing a silo over at, you know, the, the um, Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy, and the car companies are doing something else. But, but mirroring all those things up so that we've got basically one Michigan plan. I mean, it just makes sense. I mean, we are the kind of the heart of automotive, right? So why shouldn't we be, we should have the most in the Midwest. We should have the most anywhere. Like, let's get it right here. But I liked your point about it benefiting more than just people who drive electric vehicles. I think about that a lot here. We're a, de- we're a destination. Pure Michigan has worked. And now Northern Michigan is a real destination for people coming from all over the Midwest. And how much benefit it brings to people living here if they, if they're if they feel comfortable bringing their electric vehicle here and then plugging it in and charging it in order to get back home. It, it's not just for people who drive them. Yeah, that's one of the main arguments we use. If I can sell more electricity to one out of four homes that might have an EV, I can lower the rates for everybody or keep the rates stable for everybody else. So everybody does benefit when the more and more EVs we are able to serve on our on our lines. Absolutely, yeah, if you can do it right. I mean, there's, yeah. again, well, there's sure. smart ways and not so smart ways of yeah. doing it. But yeah. And that is another technology that's still kind of, especially the charging technologies in early stages. And so we know we're going to make investments in things that are going to keep changing really rapidly around us and making sure we um, we make those investments realizing that we might have to make them again. Yeah, and what's amazing to me is that this this is this is changing so rapidly and understanding the benefits of, of having these vehicles out. So a lot of people are talking about sort of using the cars as batteries, and, and there are some real challenges in terms of limiting, you know, getting rid of the warranties and everything else. But what you can do is, you know, with variability where a cloud passes over solar and for six seconds you're not generating as much, you can dial down the charging for six seconds and then have it come back. And those sort of, you know, super granular balancing effects that having sort of a resource that you need, you need it to be charged in three hours, but it's only going to need to charge for two of those hours. And the other hour you can sort of make sure it provides a grid balancing function. Mm -hmm. That opens up a huge amount of additional opportunities. Yeah, and the ability to schedule charging in general for the time Mm -hmm. it makes sense, right? So I come home, I plug my car in, and I say don't start charging until 2 a.m. when I'm sleeping but the wind is blowing kind of a thing. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting to watch it all play out. Or you have an outage and you can tap that car battery for an hour or two. That that could be a great advantage. In order to watch my Netflix show. Isn't that what you do with outages, watch Netflix? Yeah. Um, So, Tony, you talked about load growth, and we don't have much time left, but I do want to just talk about uh, Michigan's energy waste reduction mandate briefly. It's it's basically a mandate for all Michigan utilities to incentivize 1% of their previous year's sales in savings by giving rebates to their um, customers or members. Um, It's been used for things like lighting rebates, appliance, energy efficient, you know, energy star appliances. I just kind of want to hear what you all see as the future of mandated energy waste reduction programs in Michigan. Well, it's legislated to go away. So as a guy who doesn't like regulation and would rather have the market prevail in, in that regards, I'm hoping that that legislated mandate uh, does disappear. You know, and what we're seeing is that when you take a more, so two things, when you take a more holistic approach, like the integrated resource plans that we oversee, 
we're actually seeing a lot more energy efficiency, not because of the mandate, but because when you consider it as a resource on par with anything else, it makes sense to do the least cost um, piece. And so, you know, consumers in the approved IRP, the others that have submitted, have higher energy efficiency, energy waste reduction targets than what's required by law. The other piece is that we've tried to get a little smarter about, you know, this is, you know, asking a company to sell less of the product that they make, which goes against everything that most companies think about. And so how do you add incentives so that they make as much or more by by doing energy efficiency as they would if they were just selling power? Mm-hmm. And that is a win-win because it's it's less cost for the ultimate customers, but also can can make sure that the, the utility companies, the energy providers are are, are looking at things that, that help their bottom line as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that I think, uh, and just to clarify, it's not that the entire EWR program goes away. It's that co-ops become exempted. True. And True. the yeah. thing I like about that is it fits that same kind of philosophy we talked about earlier with NPSA, NPSC regulation. We just had our annual meeting, and we had a, a member say at the meeting that they were very frustrated we weren't able to process a rebate for them. They were building a house. It took more than a year the way the – the regulations is you have you can only rebate it within the year that the project happened so they weren't eligible for a rebate and I said well we would love to offer you something different and I think in the future if we could customize a program around the needs of our unique members we would do that because another thing we have here is we're 96 percent residential and a lot of the high savings um products out there aren't really designed for residential members and so it's I think I think that it's not about not doing it to your point it's not about not doing energy waste reduction it's about being able to do it in a way that absolutely makes sense for like kind of your business model for us it's going to look a little different than probably the mandate that makes sense for you know uh, utilities that serve inside big cities and commercial have a lot of commercial load yeah so uh, we've talked through a lot of things today, um, and I did ask both of our guests to bring fun facts, and I'm, I've been told that they did. Tony, do you want to give us fun fact first? Sure. I got this from uh, Green Car Reports. It's a little long, but it, it fits some of the stuff we we're talking about. And they say transitioning the U.S. to 100% renewable electricity would require building 1,600 gigawatts of new wind and solar capacity to replace the fossil fuel generation we have in the U.S. You don't have to understand what gigawatts are, but just understand what 1,600 means. And that's 1,600 gigawatts along with 900 gigawatts of energy storage, which would include some combination of batteries, pumped hydro, and other storages to buffer the intermittent power we talked about with wind and solar. So we're at 2,500 gigawatts of stuff we have to build. The U.S. currently has about 130 gigawatts of wind and solar capacity. Thus, a transition to 100% renewable energy would require as much new capacity every year for the next 11 years as we've installed in the past 20. So the point of that fun fact is we need to get building if we're going to get to where everybody on the green side wants to get. We, we have a long ways to go and a lot of stuff to build. So I think I totally misunderstood the, no, the question here. There's no, 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 there's no wrong way to do a fun That's, fact. That was fun for me. What's that fun for fun. you? So, so I've got two kids, um, and uh, they're at Northport Schools, and there's a lot of opportunities for music, and they're both super musical. Uh-huh. Um, but my fun fact is that my four-year-old knows every single word to uh, John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads. And if you ask him, this little red-haired pixie boy will, will belt it out with all the enthusiasm that you can imagine. So... 
Um, last year, he um, they were auditioning for Munchkins in The Wizard of Oz, and it was, I think, ages eight and up. And he went in as a three-year-old and locked us out of the audition room, sang Country Roads to the, <laughs> the casting person, and ultimately ended up as the, the most munchkin of the munchkins. But, as a three-year-old. So, yes. You so, should have brought him with you. We could have had him sing he, us off the podcast He will today. absolutely steal the show of any show he's in. So. That's awesome. <laughs> um, also, he can forever be the most munchkin of the munchkins, yeah. and that's fantastic. See, that, you brought the best and, fun yeah, fact. Yeah, you absolutely got the fun fact right. <laughs> we kind of flip back and forth. Sometimes we bring personal fun facts. Some, sometimes we bring things that are unique to the topic, but mine is a little apropos of the topic today. We have a new rebate program we've been running at Cherryland for about seven months now. It's not a part of our energy waste reduction program. It's designed to help introduce our members to either new technologies or technologies that would allow that would encourage them to fuel switch off of a fossil fuel onto electricity because the benefit for them to do that today is we're going to cut their carbon footprint by 60% immediately because of our power supply. So in that time, we've rebated close to 50 projects, and there are things from electric vehicles to charging stations to uh, well-connect heat pumps, all kinds of things. And we've, um, as a result, put in basically 200,000 kilowatt hours of new efficient electric load that used to be 100% fossil fuel that's now going to be at least 60% carbon-free, and we're only going to see that number go up. So we're really, really excited about that program, excited to see where it goes and continue to offer those those types of rebates and those types of programs. Fantastic. So I want to thank you again for coming in to see us and talk about the NPSC, and we will definitely have you back to talk about energy issues in Michigan.